Our text this Lord's Day is uh, from Matthew chapter 16. Verses 13 through 18. There we read the following. When Jesus came into the coasts of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father, which is in heaven. And I say unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. One of the most comforting truths in the work we do within Christ's kingdom is this. It is Christ who builds his church. Matthew 16:18 I will build my church. Thus the work of building the church is ultimately not yours or mine but Christ's. The work of reformation within the church is ultimately not yours or mine but Christ's. When we understand this truth, there can be such a lifting of the burden. And I would speak for myself as a minister. A lifting of the burden from one's shoulders when we rest in that truth that it is Christ who builds his church. For we are tempted to think, if I only had been more convincing or more persuasive, that person would have come to Christ or that person would have seen the truth or that person would have put away his or her sin. If only I had more knowledge, more holiness, more education, more wisdom, more physical strength, more years upon this earth, there would be added more to the church. Having said that, it is important for us to realize we are not entirely off the hook, however. Even though it is Christ who builds his church, we are not off the hook. For we cannot be inactive, lazy, or disobedient to Christ's will and Christ's commands 
to love one another as he has loved us, to pray for one another, to cry out that he would purify and sanctify us, we who are unclean vessels by nature and fit for the master's use. We are not to think or act in this manner. Well, if it is Christ who builds his church, I can sit around and and do nothing, just waiting for Christ to build his church. I'm relatively unimportant in the work of Christ's kingdom. I don't have any great surpassing gifts to use in building Christ's kingdom. So we can, in effect, excuse ourselves or argue ourselves out of being faithful within Christ's kingdom, in the sphere that he has given to us, within your home. Your children are, dear ones, the work of Christ's kingdom. Husbands, your wives are the work of Christ's kingdom. Wives, your husbands are the work of Christ's kingdom. And expanding beyond that into the church, into your community, into your neighborhood, at work, We can't sit around and do nothing. Philippians 2.13 says, For it is God who worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. You see, we can't simply say God's the one who does the work and do nothing because if he's at work, we will be doing. We will be willing to do his will. Dear ones, if the work of Christ's church does not go the way that we would like for it to go, in other words, adding a new family every week, that would be nice, but if it doesn't go that way, if it takes longer than we would like for it to take, if it means that rejection, persecution, or the slander of false tongues should accompany the work of building and reforming Christ's church, we need not worry nor fret. For it is Christ Jesus who is building his church, and he makes no mistakes. For it is all going according to his own eternal and infinitely wise plan. I have to remind myself continually, and so must you, This is not my church. It is Christ's church. I am expendable. Christ is not expendable. And he calls me simply to be a faithful tool that he can use in his hand and wield in his power to glorify himself in his work of building and reforming his church. Dear ones, let this be our prayer. O Lord, use me as a tool, whatever my capacities, whatever my gifts, whatever my abilities, in building and reforming thy church. 
From our text in Matthew 16, verses 13 through 18, we shall see that Christ builds his church through the following two means. First of all, he builds his church by the faithful testimony of his people. In Matthew 16, verses 13 through 17. And secondly, he builds his church by his promises. In Matthew 16, 18. So let us consider the first main point. Christ builds his church by the faithful testimony of his people. Look with me again at Matthew 16:13. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, "Whom do men say that I the son of man am?" And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. From Bethsaida, where the Lord had healed a blind man, when we look at Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through 26, he proceeds with his disciples to towns that lay in the northern boundaries of Israel, near Caesarea Philippi. After spending some time in prayer, according to Luke chapter 9, verse 18, the Lord quizzes the disciples with a question they cannot afford to get wrong. They had witnessed his miracles as demonstrations of his power and compassion. They had heard the Lord Jesus Christ preach like no one else had ever preached or ever would preach. They had observed his character and speech in private and in public, and now the Lord wants to hear their sincere testimony concerning himself as he begins to prepare them for his death and resurrection. The Lord begins by asking his disciples, all of his disciples, a more general question when we look here at verse 13, it says, He asked his disciples, in the plural, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? He asked all of the disciples this particular question, not simply one of the disciples. And they responded by saying, as we consider the next verse, <clears throat> And they said, some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. In other words, on the part of many in Israel, Jesus was viewed as being an extraordinary man. One of the prophets come to life again, but it would appear only a man. It would appear that the Jews at this time could only see their Messiah sent by God as being a mere anointed man who would be their political and military deliverer and savior. 
and who would deliver them from the tyranny of Rome. They had so misinterpreted the Old Testament scriptures that they could not recognize in Christ's words and in his deeds that he was the Son of God. They did not understand that the Messiah was not only a king over a spiritual kingdom, but also a prophet and a priest. In addition, as the Messiah, he was not only king over a spiritual kingdom, but also king over the nations of the world as well. But the Messiah, in their judgment, was one who would be a political leader. But the Messiah was in one person, according to the Old Testament scriptures, the victorious conqueror and yet the suffering servant. In one person, the Son of God, and yet the Son of Man. The Lord now narrows the focus of the question, not because he was ignorant of what the response would be, but in order to stimulate and prod their faith along by having them give verbal testimony to their inward faith. Dear ones, it's an important principle that... What we confess with our mouths has an effect upon our hearts. We can talk about which is true, that that which comes from the mouth should be motivated by that which is proper and good within our hearts. But by the same token, dear ones, what we say has an effect upon our hearts as well. Has an effect upon our lives. If we if we are going around and speaking very critically, very negatively, it's going to have an effect upon our hearts. If we are uh, professing that which is unbelieving and doubting, it's going to affect our hearts. If we profess that which is faithful and true, even if we do not feel like it, but profess and confess that which is faithful and true, And if we pray that God brings the emotions that are lacking, the motives that are lacking, even when we profess that which is true, I believe God hears and answers those prayers. Note that the Lord puts this question to all of the disciples. And this will become a very important consideration as we consider the Lord's words in Matthew chapter 16, verses 8. 18 through 19. But the Lord's question in Matthew 16, verse 15, is this But whom say ye, in the plural, but whom say ye that I am? Whom do all of you say that I am? All of you, my disciples here. Now, Peter responds as, I would submit, a spokesman on behalf of the group by declaring, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. In Matthew 16, verse 16. 
get said and asked the question of all, and I would submit that they responded through Peter. Now, this is not the only time in which Peter speaks on behalf of the disciples. In Matthew 21:20, the disciples marvel at the fig tree that withered, and they ask a question. But we see in Mark 11:21 that it was actually Peter that was asking the question on behalf of the whole group. Likewise, consider John chapter 6, beginning with verse 66. Likewise, we see here, it says, From that time many of his disciples, that is, of Christ's disciples, went back and walked no more with him over the, the sermon that Jesus had just given. Not very popular sermon to those who heard. And many of them walked away. I mean, is that uh, a unique church growth movement? Uh, you know, to give a sermon and the congregation is cut in half or cut much more than that, it happens. It happens all the time when those are faithful. And yet, when we keep our eyes simply upon how can we fill the chairs in the building, we're going to take our eyes off of being faithful to Christ. Verse 67. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? Clearly, this was spoken to all of the disciples, all twelve of them. Notice again, verse 68. Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life, and we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. He answered on behalf of all of them. And so, this particular passage that we have just read from John chapter 6 lays out for us the same testimony that Peter gave here in Matthew chapter 16. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is what he said in John 6, and yet this is much earlier in John 6. This is much earlier in Christ's ministry than the the words of Peter in Matthew chapter 18. The Lord is preparing for his death and resurrection, He's preparing his disciples for his death and resurrection. And he places this question before them to hear and to draw forth faith in him as being the everlasting, the eternal Son of God. Now, Peter's testimony in Matthew chapter 16, uh, verse 16, I would submit draws an A+. Uh, as far as the pop quiz that the Lord just gave to them. For it was a testimony that both, both explicitly and implicitly declared that Jesus alone was the eternal Son of God, who in the covenant of redemption was appointed to be the anointed prophet, priest, and king, 
as prophet to reveal God's truth concerning salvation in life, as God's uh, priest to purchase, I'm sorry, to purchase God's people by his life and death and resurrection, and as God's king to govern the church and destroy all his and her enemies. Dear ones, this truth is the very foundation upon which the church of Jesus Christ is built and reformed. That Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is God's prophet, priest, and king for his people. And without this truth, there is no church. Without that truth, there is no church. Make no mistake the importance of that truth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse, verse 11. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Only he who is the Son of God, dear ones, can perfectly speak to us the mind of God in all areas of faith and life. Only he who is the Son of God can perfectly offer a sacrifice that will satisfy the divine justice of God. And only he who is the Son of God can perfectly govern his church in doctrine, worship, government, and discipline. Only he who is the Son of God can crush all magistrates and false religions under his feet. Dear ones, if this is not your, likewise your sincere testimony, if this is not what you embrace in faith, if this is not what you believe, that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God, then... There is only condemnation and torment and hell that awaits you. Apart from that truth, there is no salvation. There is no sanctification. There is no glorification. Have you embraced Christ as more than a mere historical figure? Have you embraced him as more than merely a prophet like Elijah or Jeremiah? Have you embraced Christ as the eternal Son of God who alone can save you from sin, death, and hell and who alone builds his church? If you do sincerely make this testimony, then realize that this is not the result of your own inherent wisdom and knowledge. This is not the result of something inherent and innate within you to be able to understand and to believe that truth. This is the result of God's effectual calling in convincing you of your sin and misery, in enlightening your mind and the knowledge of Christ, and in renewing your will so that he doth persuade and enable you to embrace 
Jesus Christ freely offered to you in the gospel. That's what the Lord says in Matthew chapter 16, verse 17. It was not flesh and blood, Peter, that revealed that to you. Take joy if you see, if your eyes are opened to that. Take joy in that knowledge and in that sight and embrace and renew today your covenant with him who is the eternal Son of God. And so the Lord builds his church by way of the faithful testimony of that which is true and faithful. A second means by which the Lord builds his church is by means of his promises. As we see in Matthew 16, 18. There the Lord says, And I say unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Here we see, first of all, the promise of growth. Upon this rock I will build my church. Here one's promises from God of whatever nature, of whatever type that they may be, are undeserved. We do not merit and earn the promises of God. They are freely bestowed upon us because of the goodness of God, because He is a God of love, because His very nature is that of love, He makes promises to us. And the promise made here to the church is, I will build my church. Not because the church is holy or worthy inherently within themselves, but because he has promised to do so for his own glory. To take that which is corruptible, that which is tarnished, that which is polluted, and to make it a bride fit for himself without spot or wrinkle, which will be finally culminated and realized at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. After the Lord states that Peter's faithful testimony has come from God himself, Christ directs his words to Peter in the hearing of all the disciples. I say also unto thee that thou art Peter. Matthew 16:18. Peter had taken the lead in making this faithful testimony on behalf of the disciples. Now the Lord speaks directly to Peter, Thou art Peter. The Lord had long before this event given Peter this name, however. This was not when Peter was given this name of Peter. Um, in the Greek language, Petros, and again, spelling in the sermon will be helpful. P, if we were to anglicize the letters, P-E-T-R-O-S, Petros. Thou art Petros. 
In John 1.42, we see much earlier in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ that the Lord had given Peter this name. There we read, and he, uh, that is uh, Andrew, brought him, that is Peter, to Jesus. And when Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah. Thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. Cephas is the Aramaic equivalent to Petros in the Greek, which is likewise a little stone, a small rock or stone. That name was given by the Lord Jesus early in the ministry, soon after Jesus was baptized. And it's important to, again, understand, with regard to the word Petros, uh, that is a word that is in the masculine. It's a noun, a proper noun used of Peter, a noun used in a more common way with regard to a little stone. But it is in the masculine gender. And that will become apparent and important uh, for your knowledge in just a moment. Hopefully you'll realize the importance of that. But the Lord does not refer to him as Peter, as Petros, a little rock, in order to identify him as the one upon whom the church would be built. For no one builds a house upon a little rock. No one builds a house upon a little stone. That's what he just called him. Your little rock, your little stone. A foundation for a house does not consist of a little stone you hold in your hand. A foundation for a house rather depends upon bedrock in that particular day and age to build it upon something that was solid that when, according to the parable, the winds and the rains come, the house would not fall, would not be destroyed. Rather than identifying Peter with the rock upon which the church would be built, there is actually a contrast. Not an identification, but a contrast made here between Peter the little rock and Christ the bedrock, as we shall see. Peter has just given a faithful testimony to who Christ is, and that is great. That's wonderful. However, Let Peter never forget that he is yet only a little rock hewn or cut out of the great bedrock, Jesus Christ, whom he has just confessed. Peter is indeed a part of Christ, but he too is only a living stone that is built upon the foundation of Christ. Peter, like all of us, is one filled with weaknesses. And he must be made aware of that he is a little stone. We must be made continually aware we are little stones. 
Sometimes our, our, our ideas of ourselves can become very puffed up. And we can become so arrogant and so proud in the knowledge that we have or in the work that we do in Christ's kingdom. But Jesus would make it known to particularly the ministers of his church, you are just little stones. You're just little rocks. You're not the bedrock. And it's so interesting, that's the very point that Jesus is making here, and yet Rome has willfully, deceitfully erred to say that they are the same, that Peter is the very one upon whom Christ will build his church. How wicked, how blasphemous is such a doctrine. After having identified Peter, Petros, as the little rock, thou art Peter, the Lord promises, and upon this rock, it doesn't say he pointed to himself, but that, I believe, is what was going on, just as it doesn't say when Jesus spoke of this temple being destroyed and in three days he would raise it up, though the temple, the other temple, was right there probably in the background, was near. But he says, this temple, and though it does not say he was pointing to himself, I believe that that certainly was the significance, even if it was not the case. And here likewise, we find, and upon this rock. Not that rock, little Peter, little rock, but upon this rock. And the Lord chooses a different word. Had he said, Thou art Petros, and upon this Petros I will build my church, then obviously what must we conclude? Unless... He was again just simply pointing to himself and saying, not upon that Petros, but upon this Petros. But again, there's a clear distinction in the words that are used. Upon this Petra, not Petros. Petra is a different word. It's a different word. It's in the feminine gender, not in the masculine gender. Upon this rock, I will build my church. Upon what rock? Upon the Lord Jesus Christ. For the Lord intentionally moves from Petros in the masculine gender to Petra in the feminine gender. Petra doesn't mean little stone. does not mean little rock. It means bedrock. It means a large rock. Some have said, well, why would Christ... Christ can't be referring to himself here uh, because it's in the the feminine gender, uh, Petra. Well, that doesn't really answer the argument because if it refers to Peter, Peter's a man, and and, uh, why would it be in the feminine gender and apply to Peter? But as a matter of fact, when the Lord in John 15.1 says that he's the true vine, vine is in the feminine gender. 
and yet he identifies himself as the true vine, just as he here identifies himself as the rock. If Christ had intended Peter to be the one upon whom the church was to be built, he would naturally have said, upon this little rock or Petros, I will build my church. But he didn't say that. He didn't say that. The Lord alters the word both in its meaning and in its gender so that there would not be any confusion. There's a contrast here, therefore. Jones, is Christ the Petra upon which the church is built according to other passages in the scripture? In the Old Testament scriptures, you can consider. For example, in 2 Samuel 22.2 in the Greek Septuagint, that's the, Old Te- that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek, the very word Petra is used with regard to God. And he's Petra. In the Hebrew, you'll find passages in Deuteronomy 32.4 which say that God is a rock. Other passages in the Psalms, as in Psalm 62.2, that say God is our rock. When we turn to the New Testament, we'll find that Jesus Christ is called Petra in Romans 9.33, in 1 Corinthians 10.4, and in 1 Peter 2, verse 8. And although the word Petra is not used in 1 Corinthians 3.11, there it says that there is no other foundation than Christ. He is the foundation upon which the church is built. Dear ones, listen just for a moment. This truth that it's upon Christ and not upon Peter that the church is built, that it's his church and not Peter's church. It's Christ's church and not my church. It's absolutely fundamental destroy this one truth or this one error I should say of Rome destroy that one error and the whole Romish system comes crumbling down listen to this from a new catechism of the Catholic faith one of their own uh, church approved catechisms just to hear their system of doctrine and how it, how it is taught. <clears throat> Did Christ make any man the head of his church? The answer, Christ made Peter the head of the church. Question 20. When did Christ make Peter the head of his church? Answer, Christ made Peter the head of his church when he told Peter that he would be the rock on which he would build the church and the one to whom he would give the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And then it quotes Matthew 16, verses 18 through 19. Question 21. What authority did this give Peter? Answer. The highest teaching authority, the highest ruling authority, and the highest authority over the means of the grace of Christ. Question 22. Did Christ want Peter's authority passed on to other men? Answer, yes. 
because Christ wanted his church to last forever. Question 23. Was Peter's authority given to other men? Answer. The authority of Peter has been passed on for 1900 years. Question 24. What men have had the authority and power of Peter? Answer. The popes of the Catholic Church. Question 25. Is the Catholic Church then the only true Church of Christ? Answer. The Catholic Church is the only true Church of Christ and the only Church that has his authorities or his authority. Is it not abundantly clear that their whole system of authority that is bestowed upon the Pope and their system of doctrine is based upon that? That this authority was passed on from Peter to his successor and through all succeeding successors. But you eliminate the fact that Peter was the rock upon which Christ would build his church and their system collapses. And so it should, because Peter is a little rock. And you try and build a system upon a little rock, it's going to collapse. And that's exactly what has happened to Rome. And we, by God's grace, or our children, or our children's children, will see the collapse of the Romish system. There was all other ground is sinking sand. There is only one foundation upon which to build the church. There is only one foundation upon which to build our lives. It is the Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone. That stone cannot be moved. Heaven and earth can be moved. The mountains all around us can crumble. The planets can explode or stars can explode. But Jesus Christ cannot be moved. He is forever secure. And when we build our lives upon him, entrusting him, we likewise cannot be moved. Having established that Christ, the eternal Son of God, is the rock upon which the church is built, Christ promises to build his church. I will build my church. This is the church, dear ones, of true believers. This is the, the invisible church as opposed to the visible church. The invisible church is that which consists of all of God's elect, those who are redeemed. This is the church that is built upon the rock of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, it is Rome that says it is the visible church that is built upon this rock. And they look with great pride and say this it demonstrates and proves that we are in fact the true church because Christ promised to build this church. Look how glorious our church is. Spread throughout the world over a billion members. But dear ones, the visible church throughout history, the Old and New Testaments, has been more visible at times, has been less visible at times. 
It is the invisible church that continues to grow and can never be diminished. Because those who are part of the visible church, those who trust in Jesus Christ alone, none can be taken away. It's always a matter of addition, never a matter of subtraction from the invisible church. It is under this church and this church alone that Christ makes these promises. This is the church that he promises to continue to build regardless of the status, the state of the visible church. Regardless of the weaknesses, the frailties, the number of faithful ministers or faithful elders that may go up or go down, but Christ promises to continue to build that invisible church of the redeemed and to take none from it. None can be taken from it. So this is, this is that church. It is the church that Peter, the believer, was a little stone and a part of rather than Judas, the hypocrite. It is the the stone of which John the Apostle was a part rather than Simon Magus who was a hypocrite. This is the church, dear ones, that is promised. The gates of hell cannot prevail against it. The gates of hell cannot overcome it as a flood and cannot destroy it, cannot diminish that church. Here, dear ones, furthermore is a promise when we hear that the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. Here is a promise that the church of all of the redeemed in Christ, which stretches from Adam to the end of time, all who are chosen in Christ Jesus from before the foundation of the world will continue to be built and added to this church. When Jesus says, I will build my church, it does not imply that he wasn't building his church already. There there are various nuances to the future tense in Greek. That's certainly one possibility. I will build my church in the future. I have not been building it up to this point, but I will do so in the future. That's certainly one possible nuance. But that's not the nuance of the future tense that is used here, because another nuance of the future tense is this. I have been building, and I will continue to build my church. Just like in Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. And he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. The word I say is in the future tense. If we were to take the fact or the particular nuance that the future can only refer to that which is about to be done, but nothing that has already been begun then it would make no sense rejoice in the Lord always. He just said it. 
And I will say, not that I haven't said, but that I will say rejoice. No, he is saying here, rejoice in the Lord always. I've said it and I say it again. I continue to say it. Rejoice. So likewise, I will build my church. Does not in any way imply he hasn't been building his church from Adam until the time of the cross. It's not a promise to begin building a distinct new church from that which is was being built in the Old Testament, but a promise to continue to build the invisible church of the redeemed, composed of believers like we find in Hebrews chapter 11. If Christ, dear ones, is the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world, is he not also the rock upon which the redeemed are built from the foundation of the world? Was not the gospel of Jesus Christ likewise preached unto the Old Testament believers? According to Galatians 3.8 and Hebrews 4.2, the gospel, it explicitly says, was preached unto them. The gospel of Jesus Christ was preached unto them. There are not many ways in which God saves people. There is only one way, through Jesus Christ, through faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Whether you are an Old Testament saint you were looking forward to the coming Christ. Or whether you are a New Testament saint, you're looking back at the, at the coming of Christ and then looking forward to the second coming of Christ. The church did not begin as an entirely new entity on the day of Pentecost. The kingdom of God, or church, dear ones, was taken away from the unbelieving Jews, Jesus said, and given to believing Jews and Gentiles according to Christ in Matthew 21:43 dear ones you cannot take away what is not already given and you cannot build in this particular sense upon Christ as a foundation in a new way because he was always the foundation of the church the foundation of salvation Christ has been saving believers throughout the Old Testament and adding them to his invisible church and his, and his first coming, dear ones, did not bring an end to the saving of his people. Rather, Christ declares here to Peter and the other disciples that that which he had begun in the Old Testament in building his church would continue with fulfillment of his death and resurrection. Finally, and very quickly, there is a promise, not only that Christ will build the church, but a promise of protection here. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Against this invisible church of believers, the gates of hell, whether death or whether the powers of the enemy of hell cannot overcome the invisible church. The gates in ancient times the gates in cities of ancient times, was where the rulers and judges would gather. That was where the authority of the city was very visibly located, was at the gates of that city. There would, they would render decisions for various things at the gates. 
And so when it says the gates of hell, I would submit it's talking about the power and the authority of hell. Whether, and the word hell here is Hades, whether hell is to be understood as the power of death, because Hades does mean death at times, the, the state of death, or whether Hades means hell in the sense of the place of torment, and therefore refers to the authority of Satan and all his demonic forces. In either case, the gates of hell cannot prevail against the invisible church. Jesus will raise the dead from the grave. He will overcome, has overcome and will continue to overcome Satan and all of his enemies squashing them and trampling them under his feet. And Satan knows it full well that he is a defeated foe. The cross and the empty grave sealed his fate. Here the Lord promises that because he is the one who will build his church, not even the power of death, the power of hell can overcome those who are clinging to Christ, the rock of ages. We may be just little stones, dear ones, like Peter. Nothing beautiful to look upon. Not ornately decorated, painted, not beautifully cut. Just little stones. Rejected, despised little stones. But like Peter, with all of his sins and with all of his weaknesses, like with all of the disciples who were filled with pride and trying to determine who would be the greatest in the kingdom of God many times, who doubted and disbelieved the promises of God many times and were reproved by the Lord Jesus, Peter even denying the Lord Jesus Christ three times. Nothing beautiful. A little stone. But God took that little stone and made it a living stone and added it to his holy sanctuary, that temple, that church of the living God, built upon that foundation, the Lord Jesus Christ. The promise, dear ones, to us who lay hold of Christ, who believe in Christ, as weak and frail as we are, even with the faith of a mustard seed, laying hold of Christ, in John 28, in John 10, 28 and 29, says, And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Likewise, for your consolation and encouragement, read Romans 8, verses 35-39 this afternoon. Beloved, here is a promise to lift the Spirit when the trouble of every kind, when trouble of every kind assails us. We are secure stones in the building of Christ's holy temple. Not because we are worthy, not because we are good and beautiful and lovely and perfectly cut and chiseled. We are very unformally, uncomely, in many ways ugly 
as to the pollution that is within us. But we have been added to this holy temple which the Lord is building. So when we see, for example, like the announcement made today about the weaknesses of your elders, the frailties of we who are like you, dust, feeling overwhelmed and overcome, feeling like we cannot continue to do things as we have done them in the past, let us never forget whose church is it. This is Christ's church. May God help us to be faithful, whether we grow or we shrink, whether we reform or appear to be somewhat static in our reformation. May we continue to look to Christ, the Son of God, who is the foundation of the church. Remember, we're all expendable in the work of Christ's kingdom. We're all expendable. Christ is not expendable and he has promised to build his church and that the gates of hell will not prevail against it and he will accomplish it. Amen. Please stand with me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we confess to Thee that we are indeed little stones, but we come to Christ, who is the great stone, who is the immovable rock, the rock of ages. We come and cast ourselves upon Thee We embrace Thee, O Lord our God, today. Thou art our rock and our salvation. Whom shall we fear? Of whom shall we be afraid? O Lord our God, use us, weak and frail as we are, to be those stones in the kingdom of Christ, within the church of Jesus Christ. Use us, O Lord, regardless of how the visible church may wax or wane, diminish or increase. Show forth great glory or show forth little glory. Walk with a limp or sprint. May we never forget that Jesus is the rock. He is the rock upon which we are built. And may there our security be for life and faith, tribulation, afflictions, trials, for aid in our own spiritual life, for aid in our marriages, for aid in the church, for aid to our nation. Therein is the rock. We come to that rock today. We thank Thee 
O Lord our God, for such a faithful, enduring rock that never changes. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.